Imagine finding a way not to get sick or finding a way to reverse a long-time illness. How, you ask? Buckle on up, as you are about to find out from the world's top lifestyle medicine pioneer. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on The Motivation Show has pioneered the revolutionary field of lifestyle medicine. He is the founder of Preventative Research Institute and is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and also San Diego. He is the author of six best-selling books, including his current one, which I can't put down, called Undo It, and a great subtitle, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. Life Magazine recognized him as one of the 50 most influential members of his generation. People Magazine recognized him as one of the most interesting people of the year, and Forbes called him one of the world's seven most powerful teachers. Welcome to The Motivation Show, Dr. Dean Ornish. Thanks, Eli. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I have been reading your book, and it really resonates me because I knew probably many years ago that just simply popping a pill just didn't seem to be the all-around cure that I needed. And so one of the things I want to learn about you is how did it all start with uh, Dean Ornish growing up? And why did you want to become a doctor? <laughs> well, let's see. Um, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, now I grew up in Texas, uh, where uh, shit is a three-syllable word. I don't know if I can say that on the air or not. <laughs> sure you can. Uh, gee. And my doorway into lifestyle medicine came out of my own suffering, out of I was suicidally depressed when I was college in college at the age of 19. Uh, it also taught me how suffering and being diagnosed with a chronic disease can be a doorway for really transforming our lives. But at the time, I didn't know that I was able to suck all the meaning out of everything, you know, who cares, so what, nothing matters, big deal. And I felt like I was stupid. And now that I was in my first year at Rice University in Houston, where half the student body graduated first or second in their class, it was just a matter of time before the admissions committee realized what a big mistake they made in letting me in. And, and so and my college roommate was one of the four people that year that um, scored a perfect score on his SATs, never had to study. Anyway, the, I really wanted to be a doctor, and the, I knew I had to do well. And the more I was worried, the harder it became to study. And the harder it became to study, the more I worried. And I got in this vicious cycle where I literally couldn't sleep for a week straight, which is enough to make anyone crazy. And I remember thinking, you know, like, well, you know, why don't I just kill myself? You know, dead people look like they're peaceful, and I couldn't even sit still. So I thought, well, I'll just do that. And I was all set to do that. But I, in one of, uh, you know, God's grace, I got so run down and so sick with uh, infectious mononucleosis, also my first understanding of how the mind affects the body, I literally couldn't roll over in bed. And by then my parents 
got wind and came down and saw what a wreck I was. And so I drove home with them to Dallas and with the intention of getting well enough to kill myself, as crazy as that sounds. This was in 1973 in, in January in Dallas. My older sister had been a child of the 60s and um, had studied with an ecumenical teacher named Swami Satchidananda, and it really helped turn her life around. So when the Swami came to Dallas to give a, a lecture, uh, my parents decided to have a cocktail party for him, which was really a very weird thing to do. Today it'd be weird in Texas, but it was especially weird in 1973. And so, you know, there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and yes. that was certainly true for me. So in walks this kind of central casting idea of what a Swami should look like, you know, long white beard and saffron robes and the whole bit. And he sat down in our living room and he began to give a, a, a satsang or a lecture. And he started off by saying, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which is part of the reason why I was so depressed. I felt like, you know, no matter what I did, it wouldn't matter anyway. But, you know, then I was looking at him and he's like glowing and I'm ready to do myself in. I'm like, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what probably sounds like a new age cliche, but it turned my whole life around, which is that while nothing can bring us lasting happiness and health, that it's with few exceptions, it's our nature to be happy and healthy until we disturb that. And not being mindful of that, we say, oh gosh, if only I had whatever I think I need to be happy and healthy, more money, more power, more sex, more beauty, more accomplishment, whatever, then I'd be happy, then people would love me, then I wouldn't feel so lonely and isolated. And he later taught me that once you set up that view of the world, However, it turns out you generally feel bad because until you get it, you feel stressed. If someone else gets it and you don't, whatever that it is, it just reinforces that the more you get, the less there is for me. And it's a hostile dog eat dog, zero sum game, competitive world and so on. Uh, but even if you get it, it's very seductive in the moment because it makes it feel like, yeah, that really did make me happy. But it's invariably it doesn't last. You know, it's like how many times did you say like, gee, if I just made $10,000 a year, that would do it, you know, and then, well, maybe 20,000, whatever. It's never enough, either now what, or so what? Big deal, it doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. In fact, a patient of mine later said that letdown that comes from accomplishing a goal is so great, I always make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time so I can immediately shift my attention. Hmm. And what the Swami said is that when you meditate or when you do these spiritual practices, they don't bring you a sense of peace and health and well-being, that that's our natural state. What they do is at least temporarily quiet down our mind and body so we can experience what's always there. Now, that may sound like, you know, parsing words and so on and semantics, but the implications are quite profound because if you have something that I think I need to be happy and healthy and lovable, then you have great power over me and until, you know, and I really need to get it so the stresses go way up. But if it's me, if it's like, what am I doing to disturb my own inner sense of health and well-being? not to blame myself, but actually to empower myself, I can do something about that. So the dynamic shifts from how can I get what I think I'm lacking to be happy and healthy to how can I stop disturbing what's there already? So I just said, okay, I'll, I'll move killing myself down to plan B. Let me try this weird stuff. You know, So I began eating a plant-based diet, which was really weird in Texas growing up then, and meditating and exercising. And, and I began to get little glimpses. I could barely sit still long enough to meditate, but I just do walking meditations. Got little glimpses of what it felt like to be happy and peaceful and to remind, to literally remind myself that the meditation didn't bring that to me, but it was there already. And so I then began to get more and more quieted down. I went back to school, graduated first in my class, gave the baccalaureate. And I say that not to brag, but to say I experienced both ends of that spectrum. Like I was a total worthless failure, stupid, to actually doing quite well. And the paradox was, the more I felt like I needed to do well to be happy and healthy and lovable, 
the more stressed I was and the harder I couldn't read a headline on the newspaper and tell you five minutes later what it said. But the more inwardly defined I was, the paradox was the more I could actually accomplish at a higher level. So when I went to medical school and I was learning how to do bypass surgery with Michael DeBakey, the heart surgeon who pretty much invented it, you know, we'd cut people open, we bypass their clogged arteries and he'd tell them they were cured and they'd go home and more often than not, they'd do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place, you know, eating junk food and not managing stress and smoking and all that. And so their bypasses would often clog up and then we'd cut them open again, sometimes multiple times. And so for me, bypass surgery became a metaphor of an incomplete approach. So we're literally bypassing the problem. We weren't also treating the cause, a little like mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing without also turning off the faucet. Lucrative so, for the doctor, but not so great for the patient, huh? Exactly. So I wonder what would happen if we turned off the faucet, which to a larger degree than I had once realized were the lifestyle choices. One of the nice things about being a medical student is that you'll do things you're not fully indoctrinated. So I took a year off between my second and third years of medical school, put 10 men and women in a hotel for a month, and they got better. And they not only felt better, but they were better. We could actually measure the improved blood flow to their heart and the chest pain, and most people went away completely. You know, People who literally couldn't walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without getting severe chest pain were essentially pain-free after just a few weeks. And so that got me interested in doing what later became a series of randomized trials proving for the first time that even severe heart disease could be reversed. And later we showed that these same lifestyle changes that could reverse heart disease could reverse type two diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and early stage prostate cancer. We did a study with Craig Venter, uh, who was the first to decode the human genome that when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes, turns on the good genes, turns off the bad ones. We did a study with Liz Blackburn who got the Nobel prize for discovering uh, telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that regulate uh, cellular aging. And we found for the first time we could lengthen telomeres. And when we published that, the Lancet editors called it first study showing that lifestyle changes can reverse aging at a cellular level. And we're now in the midst of the first randomized trial to see if we can reverse early stage Alzheimer's disease. And so the Undo It book that just came out in paperback puts forth this new unifying theory, like why is it that these same lifestyle changes can reverse so many different diseases? And I realized it's because the diseases are not really so different that, you know, I was trained like most doctors to, you know, different diseases, different diagnoses, different treatments, and yet they all share the same underlying uh, biological mechanisms, chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome and telomeres and gene expression that we talked about and so on. And each one of these mechanisms is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. So. You know, the book starts with a quote from um, Albert Einstein. He says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Yeah, I love that so quote. It, it reduces it down to its essence. You know, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, Only four it. steps. You know, you know, when you look at the Bible, you've got the Ten Commandments. You know, it's tough <laughs> to get all ten, but you only got four. Yeah, we reduce it down to its essence even further. <laughs> Yeah, let's start with the first one, eat well. I mean, that's a really big one. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is you hear you are growing up in Texas, you might have been the only person not having ribs and uh, and barbecue. Yeah, it was a big change for sure. But um, it really made a big difference. One of the things we've learned is that when you make big changes, because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, you feel so much better so quickly. It reframes the reason for making lifestyle changes from fear fear of bad, you know, a heart attack or stroke or dying early to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which is really what makes them sustainable. So the diet is essentially a whole foods plant-based diet, mostly fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products, as they come in nature. 
low in fat, low in sugar naturally. Now, if you're trying to reverse a life-threatening condition, the reason we were the first to prove you could reverse so many of these different conditions is that it's hard. You have to make really big changes. That's why most people didn't do it because they didn't go far enough. Ounce of prevention, pound of cure, if you will. But if you're otherwise pretty healthy and you're just trying to you know, lose a few pounds or get your blood pressure or cholesterol or blood sugar down, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. So if you indulge yourself one day, doesn't mean you cheated or you failed, just eat healthier the next. You don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. You don't have time to meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you have, there's a corresponding benefit. One of the things we learn is that the more you change, the more you improve, not only in how you feel, but in every way we can measure uh, at any age. And it's a very empowering realization. So that's the diet. The exercise is pretty much, if you like it, you'll do it. So find something you enjoy doing and do that. You know, it's basically aerobic exercise, a little strength training and resistance training. That's the easy one for me, you know, just going out there and exercise. That, that to me is just easy. The, yeah. the other stuff's a little bit harder. So go ahead. <laughs> the other is the, the stress management, uh, stress less. Uh, the stress comes not so much from what we do, as I talked about earlier, but how you react to what you do. And so just something as simply as meditating, you know, it could be secular, religious, doesn't matter, stretching, breathing, meditation techniques, and so on, uh, can allow you to be in the same job or family or school or work or whatever it is, but you don't react the same way. People say things like, you know, I used to have a, a short fuse and I'd explode easily. Now my fuse is longer. I can actually get more done without getting so stressed in the process. And the fourth part is the one that most people have the biggest question about. Okay, like you, they say, okay, I get the exercise and diet. Okay, so you got to eat. It's just a question of what. And even meditation is a little weird, but okay. But love more? What's all that about, you know? <laughs> and uh, it turns out that, you know, I think the real epidemic in our culture isn't just heart disease or COVID. It's, uh, it's uh, loneliness and depression and isolation. You know, especially today, ago, right? Especially today, you know, yeah. with the you know, social sequestration and so on. But, you know, 50 years ago, most people had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a job that felt secure they'd been at for 10 years or more. They saw their colleagues regularly, got to know them. They had a, a neighborhood with two or three generations of people that they grew up with. They had a, and a church or synagogue or mosque or club or something they went to regularly. And many people, they don't have any of those things. And you know, being on Facebook, it doesn't really do that. It's not a real authentic intimacy. One of the studies that I cite in the new book and the Undo It book is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Because it's, it looks like everybody has this perfect life, but you, you know, here I am with in front of the Eiffel Tower and here I am with my kids, you know, doing my perfect kids and whatever. You can never keep up with those Joneses, right? Because everybody's always posting that perfect, you know, uh, soundbite moment. Exactly. But, you know, if you grew up in an extended family or with two or three generations of people, they really know you. They don't just know your, you know, your Facebook profile. They know where you, your dark side, they know where you messed up and you know that they know and they know that you know that they know and they're still there for you. And it's just something really primal about like what James Cameron said in Avatar, you know, I see you, I see all of you. And, and when we, we have our support groups, they're really not just helping people stay on the diet, it's really creating a safe place that enables people to let down their emotional defenses and, and be authentic with each other in a safe environment. And it's the part of the program people have the most questions or often even apprehension about when they start it, but invariably it's the most meaningful because the need for love and connection and community is such a a primal human need that so often goes fulfilled, unfulfilled, that when people have it, it's, it's incredibly meaningful to them. And it's why we get such high levels of adherence to the program as a whole, because we're not just focusing on the information, but we're working at a deeper level. Can I ask you a question about the loving more? And sure. it really resonates with me. I think most people aren't loved enough and, uh, and don't do enough loving, but it's hard, I guess, to control people loving you. It's easy to control you loving others is that as important 
as being loved, loving Absolutely. others. Absolutely. And, you know, and the, and, you know, there are, Aldous Huxley wrote a book called The Perennial Philosophy years ago that kind of distilled down what are the common themes among all the different religions and spiritual paths that people fight and kill each other over, you know, my way is best, no, my way is best. And it's, you know, love and altruism and forgiveness and compassion for oneself and for others. You know, if you can have compassion for your own problems, you can then have love and compassion for others as well. It, it frees us both. You know, the most the, the most toxic emotion in terms of, say, heart disease and so many other conditions is, is chronic anger. And so when you quiet down your mind, when you have more compassion and love for yourself and can have more compassion for others, it doesn't excuse or condone them for what they've done, but it frees you from the suffering that otherwise you'd be experiencing. And it's so important to work at that level because, you know, I'd ask people like, why do you smoke and overeat and drink too much and work too hard and abuse opioids and so many video games? These behaviors seem so maladaptive to me. And they look at me, they go, they're not maladaptive. They're very adaptive. They help us deal with our loneliness, our depression, our pain. I've had patients, you know, hold up their pack of cigarettes and say, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me. You're going to take away my 20 friends. What are you going to give me? Or they'll say, you know, food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or alcohol or opioids numb the pain or video games numb the pain or working all the time distracts me from my pain. And so, Clearly, if information were enough, nobody'd smoke. It's not like, you know, I'd say, hey, Eli, guess what? Smoking is bad for you. Did you know that? Oh, I'll quit today. You know, everybody knows that. So we have to work at a deeper level. And when we work at that level and help people use the experience of suffering to really get their attention and say, okay, if you're willing to make these changes, that pain is likely to get better. Not only the chest pain or the physical pain, but the, the deeper pain. Then we find that people are much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. You know, it's interesting to go back into the first one, eating well. I like it, look at it as uh, I got to give myself and my wife a break. You know, we can't always cook in, in the house, so we like to go out and eat. Uh -huh. I find it extremely difficult to go out and eat, even to places that do provide plant-based foods, because then they're still smothering it in oil. Uh, I don't know what your take on oil is, but uh, it seems like there's too much of it to make up for perhaps flavor or whatever they're trying to do it just everything is cooked with oil uh, and then they throw other mystery things in there and and there goes the health part of it what are your take on that yeah it's true and you know i've been approached for decades to help develop a line of foods and i've always said no but just you know last month uh, medicare agreed to cover my reversing heart disease program they created a new benefit category to cover my program 10 years ago in hospitals and clinics and a month ago they announced that they'll cover it in um by in your own home, doing it via Zoom. So you can live anywhere now. You don't have to live within driving distance to one of the hospitals or clinics we've trained, and which will also help to reduce health disparities and health inequities because anybody can do it now. And we're uh, working with a company called ShareCare to really get it out there. But I may, you know, end up doing a line of food sometime in the next several months. If anyone's interested, just go to Ornish.com, which has all the in information about our work. It's all free on there. We've been providing, for example, we're doing the first randomized trial to see if we can reverse early stage Alzheimer's. I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very similar to where we were with heart disease 40 years ago. In other words, the same biological mechanisms, you know, what's good for your heart is good for your brain and vice versa. Less intensive interventions back then could slow the rate at which your arteries got clogged. We found bigger changes were required to reverse it. And we're hoping the same may be true with Alzheimer's. So if anyone's watching this, um, go to Ornish.com. If you have early Alzheimer's or have a family member that does, it's all done for free. You know, we actually provide you 21 meals a week for you and your spouse or caregiver.
for the 40 weeks of the study. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we'll be, you know, we're still in the middle of the study, so we can't say anything for sure, but I'm hopeful that we may be able to stop or reverse its progression, at least in some people. And since there are no drugs that can even stop its progression, if we show that, I think that'll really potentially give millions of people new hope and new choices. So if you're interested in the study, just go to Ornish.com. I want to go back to uh, uh, one of the four building blocks you talk about. You call it the unifying theory. You know, of course, you got to have all four together and stress less. And the reason I want to get back to that is sometimes I have the challenge where I have to decide, do I meditate for 20 minutes or do I get another task done? And I have to justify why maybe meditating is the better choice. Now, I know that meditating is the better choice, but sometimes I don't make that choice. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to the fact the same thing. It's like, how do I squeeze that in? The day has already ended, you know. So talk a little bit more about why it's essential, not even optional, but just simply essential to slow down and accomplish more by doing so. Yeah, well, I, what I do is I get up 10 minutes early, you know, but well, I mean, once the day starts, you know, I get pulled in so many different directions. It's all too easy just to say, well, I'll do that later and never get to it. But if I do it first thing in the morning, first of all, I get it done and it's just 10 minutes. So I just sleep 10 minutes less and I get more to make up for that by doing the meditation in terms of feeling rested. But also it's, it's like if you hear a song on the radio in the morning, you find yourself humming it later in the day. Subconsciously, your meditation carries with you throughout the day. And people used to say things like, you know, I used to have a, a short fuse and I'd explode easily. Now things just don't bother me as much. And it's like, well, like, do you have to hold it in? And no, no, I just, things don't bother me as much. So if things don't bother you as much, and you can accomplish even more without getting stressed because it's the stress and the anxiety that often get in the way of being productive. So the paradox is that by just taking that 10 minutes every morning, like brushing your teeth, uh, it enables you to accomplish so much more without getting stressed and without getting sick in the process. That makes a lot of sense. So we're right now, of course, we're still in the throes of uh, COVID. I don't know where we're going to be, you know, a year from now, and this is still out there playing to people. But tell us how all this uh, affects COVID. Well, you know, I mean, we have many pandemics going on. COVID is not the only one. Heart disease, type 2 diabetes, loneliness, depression, and so on. But those are more foodborne illnesses as opposed to bacteria, virus-borne illness. But it turns out that, you know, especially with the new Omicron variant, it's so much more infectious that even if you are triple vaccinated now, you're only about 80% protected. So I think people are really looking, what else can I do to boost my immune system? And it turns out there were two really amazing studies that just came out in the last month or so. One looked at about 3,000 frontline healthcare workers, people who take care of COVID patients, get exposed to it throughout the day, every day. And they found that those that had a, were eating a plant-based diet, uh, the one like I recommend in the Undo It book, were 73% less likely to develop moderate to severe illness. Those following a pescatarian diet, you know, vegetarian plus fish, were 59% less likely. But those following an Atkins, paleo, keto, low-carb, high animal protein diet were nearly 400% more likely to develop moderate to severe COVID. And mm-hmm. there was another study that came out of Harvard that looked at almost 600,000 uh, men and women. And those that were following a whole foods plant-based diet, like I recommend in the Undo It book, were 41% less likely to develop moderate to severe disease. But you alluded earlier that, you know, the social, you know, distancing and isolation, I mean, everyone, you know, should get vaccinated, wear a mask and avoid exposing people. But the social isolation itself can be a problem for people unless you reach out and, and touch someone. There was a study that Sheldon Cohen did. I don't know how he got this through the Human Studies Committee that was published in the journal of the AMA, where they actually 
got volunteers and paid them and dripped the rhinovirus, the cold virus that causes the common cold into their noses. And 100% of them got infected. They did another similar study with a different type of coronavirus, the cousin of the one that causes COVID. And all of them got infected, but not everybody got sick. And they found that those that had six or more what they called social contacts, a visit from a friend, a phone call, a Zoom call, a letter, whatever, an email, uh, if they had six or more over a two-week period compared to those who had two or fewer, they were four times less likely to develop the signs and symptoms of a cold if they had six or more contacts over a two-week period versus uh, two or fewer. Now, you know, they were 100% of them were infected, so you can't always avoid the virus, but how your body interacts with it in part is a function of the love and support that we have. And so here again, it's just another reason why the love war part of my program is really so important. So you have had patients improve so much after nine weeks that they were actually able to avoid a heart transplant. Now that's pretty good results. And yet, even with those results, there are some people who are struggling and for whatever reason, they still just can't make that change. How do we convince them? How do we get Dean's Army out there? Because I want to be part of Dean's Army uh, to get people to, you know, get into their right mind and prevent things uh, and reverse things before it's too late. Well, I think you've kind of touched on something really important, which is the, the biggest obstacle I've found in these 44 years of doing these work, these studies and so on, is that people think, oh, diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. How powerful could that be? You know, it's got to be really high tech and expensive, a new drug, a new laser, a new device or surgical procedure to be powerful. And I think, you know, our unique contribution has been to use these very high tech, expensive, state of the art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low tech and low cost interventions can be. And I think, you know, what could be a bigger, a better contrast? Like what's the more radical intervention here? A, a heart transplant where you cut your chest open, put a new heart in, you have to take a lifetime of immunosuppressive drugs and so on. It costs a million and a half dollars per operation or eat well, move more, stress less, love more. We have dozens of people. One of the people that's in chapter one of the Undo It book is a guy named Robert Troyhertz, who's uh, obviously given permission to talk about it who's a doctor himself, an internist, and had a massive heart attack to the point where so much of his heart was damaged, his heart was barely pumping. It was pumping 11 to 15% of what it should be. And he was told that only a new heart could save his life. And so it's hard to find someone who's going to donate their heart. Usually they have to get killed in a motorcycle accident or something. So while they were looking for a donor, he went through my reversing heart disease program at UCLA in Los Angeles to get in better shape for the heart transplant. And his heart improved so much in only nine weeks, he didn't need a heart transplant anymore. Now it's pumping more than 30%. Now, he just called me a few weeks ago, it's actually up to 40%. It's virtually normal now. So, you know, it's like, I remember when we were working with uh, the heads of Medicare, uh, this was a 16 year process for them to cover my reversing heart disease program. At one point they said, well, you have to get a letter from the head of the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute of the NIH that it's safe for older people to walk, meditate, eat vegetables, quit smoking and love more. I said, you must be joking. And they weren't. We actually had to do a formal literature review. And at that time, they were spending $100 billion a year on stents and angioplasties and bypasses, which have since been shown that, you know, in stable patients are, you know, they don't prolong life. They don't prevent heart attacks that are essentially dangerous, invasive, expensive and largely ineffective. So it's all kind of topsy-turvy, but that's one of the reasons why it was so important for me to get Medicare and other insurance companies to cover our program. First of all, I didn't want this just to be for affluent people having seen how powerful it can be. But also, you know, if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and, and even medical education. And you know, there, 
there are other issues beyond just our own personal health. You know, what's good for you is good for the planet and what's personally sustainable is globally sustainable. It turns out that more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. And a lot of people think, you know, it's so feel easy to feel like overwhelmed, like <clears throat> what can I do as one person to make a difference with global warming or feeding the hungry or deforestation in the Amazon or, you know, a 13 billion animals that suffer every year. And it turns out something as primal as what you put in your mouth every day affects all of those. You know, the it takes 14 times more resources to make a pound of a meat-based protein than plant-based protein. If more people just had a meatless Monday, you don't have to be vegan, just eat more in that end of the spectrum. It frees up a lot of resources to feed people who are hungry. There's no one really need go hungry. There's enough food to feed everyone if more people ate that way. And the deforestation in the Amazon is largely due to clear-cut, you know, forests to make land for grazing cattle. And, you know, there are 13 billion sentient animals that get these horrible lives. They just live in a pen on their whole life and then they get slaughtered. Uh, it's great if that's all you have, but since we have so many wonderful fruits and vegetables, you know, why not do that? And again, it's to the degree you do that, it imbues those choices with meaning. And if it's meaningful, then those choices become sustainable. You know, you talk about in your book, the advantages of preventing disease versus reversing disease. Can you talk about that? Well, prevention is always better than cure. My dad was a dentist and he was always trying to get people to brush their teeth, you know, and they say, oh, I'll just get false teeth. You know, he just couldn't understand why, why people, you know, would think that way. But in terms of saving money, it turns out that if you want to show cost savings in the first year, 5% of people account for up to 80% of all healthcare costs. The, the you know, the $3.8 trillion in healthcare costs last year are mostly for chronic diseases that can largely be prevented and even reversed by changing lifestyle. And so we did two studies, one with Mutual of Omaha, where they offered my program as a direct alternative to people who otherwise would have had a stent or bypass. And almost 80% of the people under their doctor's supervision were able to avoid the surgery. And Mutual of Omaha saved almost $30,000 per patient in the first year. And then Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield found they cut their overall healthcare costs in half in the first year and by fourfold in the people that they'd spent at least $25,000 on in the prior year. And the reason why it's important to show cost savings in the first year is that about 30% of people change jobs and change insurance companies every year. So the insurance companies would say, why should we spend our money for some future benefit if they're gonna be gone and someone else is likely to get it? But now that we've shown we can save money in the first year, you know, when you change reimbursement, it changes medical practice and even medical education. And that's what's been happening. So it's, it's finally about time. Well, I'm gonna make a very profound statement. And that profound mm -hmm. statement is that undo it, how simple lifestyle changes can reverse most chronic diseases I believe, is one of the most important books of our generation. Mm, a book that can, I truly believe that, a book that can save you a lot of grief, save your loved ones a lot of grief, help you to reverse an issue that you currently have. I know myself, I'm reading the book, looking to reverse things that I have, and I know how important it is to me, and I want to share that with my loved ones. So I urge everybody, go out, not only get yourself a copy, but get your friends a copy of, of this book, and people will thank you for that. And that's actually one of the principles in your book. That's a, an actual gift of love. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, if you give someone to someone else, it just comes right back to you. Just in a loving feeling, it makes your heart open, makes your arteries relax. You know, not just in your heart, but your sexual organs and your brain and everything. Get, get, you know, the blood gets everywhere better. Our guest on today's show has been Dr. Dean Onish. Dean, thank you so much for coming on the show. You are a wealth of information and healing. Eli, thank you so much for the chance to be of service. I hope it's been useful. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.